0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 8th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. All right, marches in Pakistan are underway as well as international Teach Your Daughters to Speak Up Day. Teach your sisters to be safe day. Teach us all to be bigger than one day of the dank year day. And a hundred years in the making, the Emmett Till-Andy Lynching Act was passed by both federal legislative chambers yesterday, my God. Today, my guests are Emeritus Professor of Eastern European History, Nancy Wingfield, and attorney blogger, Sharon Lee, to consider our thinking, our seasoned women's thinking, reaching in such excellent ways for a deeper understanding of this world we're in. We'll be right back after not too long a break. Don't go away all. Thank you everybody for staying tuned it's March 8th and a good time to tap into the gifts of the thinking of seasoned women. Sharon Rosenlieb, attorney and blogger, and Nancy Winfield, Emeritus Scholar of Eastern European Studies and Gender Studies, will present solid tapes today on the range and the depth of years, folks, decades, of analyzing current events. It's time, a work in progress, I am going to bring on other women. This isn't the definitive discussion because there's lots of demographics I want to bring on in this discussion. But today, on March 8th, I wanted to do it this way. First, my first guest is Sharon Rosenlieb. She's a columnist at the San Diego Jewish Journal and former deputy attorney general. Her works appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Jewish publications throughout California, The Forward, NPR's California Dreaming series, and the anthology Seder Stories. She's appeared in two documentary films discussing the life of her great-grandfather Sol M. Wurzel, a pioneer Hollywood movie producer who developed the talents of iconic luminaries in the business. She continues to write for San Diego Union Tribune, Times of Israel, and won the American Jewish Press Association Award for Best Freelancer in last year, 2021. She was last on this show, reporting on her monitoring November 2020 elections around Arizona. My other guest with another very short short intro I'm giving her is Nancy Wingfield. She's been studying nationalism as well as gender and sexuality in Habsburg, Central Europe. Over her career at Northern Illinois University, Nancy has been considered an innovator in the field of Habsburg Central Europe studies for advancing the use and methods and achievements of cultural and social history. A recent work, her title is Interwar Fascism in Czechoslovakia, Prostitution, Medicine, and the Body in the Age of European Empires, and Synthetic History of Vienna." And prior to her 1996 appointment in Northern Illinois University, she taught at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She was last on this show taking the long view of fascistic trends that the previous administration has perpetrated both domestically and internationally. Nancy comes to us today from the Kansas City area and Sharon Lieb from San Diego. Welcome both of you back to Ask a Leader. Pleasure to be here, Claudia. <laughs> that is Sharon. Thank you. And that's Hello, everyone. And that's Nancy. Well, first, I'd like to try an analogy, and you can, both of you, with your letters and range, you can perhaps you can bump me off my analogy and find a better one. But I'd like for us to think of journalism analysis and research. It's a bit of a highway. You've got your lanes, along with all the analysts of all ages navigating along this freeway of this highway of sorts. So and and I, I was putting this show together. I recently interacted with a Harvard labor researcher about nuance in covering race, anti-Semitism and Ukraine in all aspects. It was lacking a sufficient depth. And I mean, the, I'll bring in any examples where uh, they fit in in our discussion here. And seeing it, I was really concerned about this chasm I see opening up between younger and veteran analysts, scholars, and professionals, journalists, wanting to make the case for, I want to, for better integration of all the town. That's what we're going to conclude is how we're mentoring and integrating and passing the torch and collaborating and all that kind of thing. Personally, I'm always calling out wedges in discourse as yielding a very pernicious outcome for what I call profit seeking enterprises that's like misinformation and wedges and all that that thrive on the conflictual algorithm so that this is not about a divisive exercise and I hope that the unwieldy huge things I'm bringing out are reasonably clear that I'm putting out here today and I'm asking for you Nancy and Sharon hopefully later I'll have uh, some more younger contributors to talk about these lanes that women occupy in giving you your due with your extensive experience. So my points aren't new ones. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. They've just been buried. So I'd like for both of you to talk about how the current trends have brought this about. We've got, we've got influencers. We've got distributed news generators. We've got uh, reduced investment in investigative reporting. Talk about what these factors are that have brought us to this point where we are, 2022. There's a big bite to do. (laughs) Well, I'll jump in
1: and say that I have a friend who's a professor of journalism at USC Annenberg School. And I said, how do you coach your students into knowing that they'll be able to make a living in journalism? Because the lack of funding for legacy publications is very well known. And he said, I tell them they have to start developing a brand as soon as they arrive at USC. Wow. That's so early. <laughs> that is, that is. But I think I, I think it's a necessity if they ever want to have a hope of making a living in journalism, either broadcast, print, blogging, any form. But balanced with that is the need to be objective and fair minded. And as Claudia said, Wedge journalism provides a lot of uh, hits and recognition, and Twitter has
0: fueled that fire. Okay. That's Sharon. Nancy?
2: Okay. Because I'm not a journalist, I think about this perhaps differently than a journalist would, and I'll speak only about Ukraine. And let me be clear, I'm not an expert. I'm an interested onlooker. I've spent some time there doing research. And I wanted to talk about Kimberly Sanjulian Varnan. She's a grad student at Penn, where I think she studies with Peter Holquist and Ben Nathans. And her very careful contributions to discussion of the war in Ukraine, she is extremely nuanced. She is a black woman and has discussed people of color. She discusses um, international students. She discusses women. She discusses the entire package and very, very carefully. I think she is able to do this because, A, she's really good at public-facing history, but, B, because she is writing a dissertation on Ukraine and Russia. And so she has a background that didn't start yesterday or last week, and she didn't just drop in to the area. And this is what interests me. I consume almost no spoken journalism It's certainly not TV journalism. I sometimes listen to NPR in the car. And on Friday nights, I watch PBS, Washington Week in Review. I'm perfectly happy, in fact, thrilled to see younger faces on Washington Week in Review. I'm fascinated by the choices made that look so much more like the students I had in class. And this seems to me to be very important I'm not sure how knowledge is passed on outside of academic history, and I'm not even sure how well it works there, but this is, you know, this is not a good answer. I've. <laughs> I've raised more issues probably than I've I've responded to.
0: Well, but Nancy, you're in the middle. You are sort of the you're training. You're you by example. You're you're bringing all this nuance. You set a standard. So there's I'm using analyst in such a broad way that I want to include how academics are you know contributing to sort of a well for deeper breathing, deeper thinking, and critical thinking and we'll break it down some more but i think you really fit in this area and i i'm so glad that you're part of this whole today's equation on international women's day and and especially because of what you're watching in eastern europe and and that's taken all these years of understanding and cult uh, snooping around and all those archives and all that that you've developed such a huge huge range so let's continue these points as i said they're not new that the idea that there's distributed news i don't know if there's distributed academics that, that that i guess maybe you've seen this nancy the equivalent of distributed news and influencers where you're seeing somebody say well i'm i'm in the rock star of humanities and people follow me on TikTok or whatever. I mean, is, is that is there something comparable to that happening? And I know you're on Twitter. You can see it there.
2: Um, not in my particular group of people okay. that I follow. And I'm not so much in academic Twitter as I am in history Twitter. And that's, I think, very, very different than other fields. We have intermixing there. I follow anthropologists, things like that. But I tend to think there are certain things that many historians, and I would say here, historians who are not historians of North America and maybe England, think are important. One of them is languages. And I want to hear from people who if not speak, at least read the language of the place they're discussing. I saw yesterday in the New York Times, I was reading along, and it said Czechoslovakia in 1956. It was talking about Russian tanks. And I was trying to decide if they meant Hungarian Uh, tanks. Yeah, right. You know, tanks in Budapest and Hungary in 1956, Russian tanks, or Russian tanks in Prague in 1968. I thought that was an astounding error to be made. It just shocked me.
0: It is um, shocking, isn't it, Sharon?
1: That is interesting. And I, I do think <sighs> academics horrible. are a precious resource to journalists.
0: Right. As a, because compl-
1: they, they, they have the deep knowledge that journalists who tend to be more generalist lack?
0: Well,
2: one of the things that people I know or follow have commented on, and it's not just having to do with Ukraine, it's how often they provide information and then they're not credited.
0: Right, right.
2: And... Rosemary Foyer, who is a very important public historian, she's a labor historian, had mentioned this to me earlier because she's a sort of go-to person for discussion of Mother Jones and things like that. But I've also seen it from people, many of them women, um, commenting about today's media. I don't know how widespread this is because I'm not someone who comments or is asked to comment particularly on current events.
0: Well, so while we're talking about this, there's another example. I'm not calling out people, but if you remember, if people remember the uh, the contribution on Twitter, it's a Washington Press Corps member from a Southern California paper. I better not get more specific now or I will be calling the person out. But they, they were taking issue with President of Ukraine Zelensky's Pronouncement and this or lead up to this invasion. This person said, President Zelensky made this gesture of calling the Wednesday prior to act, the act or the it was the 16th of February. He said he was kind of called this the Unity Day, you know. And I, I all right, I understood what what that was trying to orchestrate. What what was trying he's trying to achieve there. And this journalist weighed in and said, hey, man, read the room. And I thought, well, that's pretty ironic. I think the journalist missed the point of the gesture from the president who is, who's got barrels, you know, down his throat. So I, did anybody happen to notice that kind of discussion going on in the drum up to this invasion? Missing it. Just like Nancy was talking about what date Czechoslovakia are Hungary. I
1: was in Ukraine three years ago on a jewish roots trip so i got to meet ukrainian people and get us a, a brief sense of what's going on there and what i learned is that ukraine is a very poor country relative to other european union countries and i think that fact is missed in a lot of the discussion that ukraine has a pre-existing condition of poverty so president relative to these other countries so president Zelensky. Is up against so much. And I think when he calls for unity, it's really a plea to be recognized as worthy with the European Union. And again, that's a lack of nuance that people just, um, people here in the United States just don't understand.
2: And I would add to that that there are very different levels of poverty in Ukraine. I've spent time only in the West, and I'm saying that as a precondition for what I'm saying next. Kiev is a modern European capital. The Ukrainians are noticeably wealthier, for example, than the Moldovans, who came in their thousands to the open market in Chernitsvi, which was apparently the largest one in the post-Soviet space, to get material. Is Ukraine noticeably less wealthy than the um, EU countries that it borders? Yes. And the EU, at least when I was there, the last time I think was 2017 or 18, the EU functioned as a barrier to keep Ukrainians out. And the only country that seems to me since 1991 to have been generally welcoming to Ukrainians has been Poland. Mm -hmm. And this has been over a period of 30 years. Okay. My students in Ukraine, at least one of them spoke Portuguese and we spoke Portuguese together. Why did she speak Portuguese? You might ask because her father had been a guest worker in Portugal with two friends of mine, she was at the university, and he was a politician. We spoke Czech because that was our common language, and we might be discussing food in a restaurant in Czech, and someone on the waitstaff would correct us in Czech because said person had worked in the Czech Republic. At least one of my students got into CEU, and I hope she's still in Hungary. But the, the border... Really functioned as a modern iron curtain, mm. and here we we also need to pay attention to the fact the Ukrainians are extraordinarily well educated.
0: Right. Well, and I want to say when Sharon was talking about an impoverished pre existing condition, culturally rich, but sort of in life standard impoverished. Is that fair to say both of you? What you both have experienced. Yes. I mean, yeah. and that's huge. I'm very cultural culturally richness. rich country. Yeah.
2: I agree with that, but I'd stick with there is a there is a very large differential
0: mm.
2: within cities. There are people with plenty of money who've made it in a variety of ways. Okay, we went out and to the village villages. Of- it's very different. I, yeah. I think villages are are really different. There are empty villages where everyone's immigrated, say to Canada. But I, but wow. Sharon's point I think is well taken. It is not a wealthy country.
0: You were saying, Sharon? It's too? it's it has
1: one third the per capita income of Bulgaria, which is the poorest country in the European Union.
0: Wow!
1: And we did go out to a village about an hour northeast of Odessa the village where my grandfather emigrated from, and farmers were pulling their produce in horse-drawn, um, what's the word, horse-drawn, yeah. horse-drawn carts. Yeah, okay. Horse-drawn carts with no trucks or tractors in sight. And gas lines are above ground, electrical lines are frayed, the homes people live in are, are very small with thatched roofs. It looked like, I, we travel back in time 100 years, so that's the difference between the cities and the country. It's a very stark difference,
0: and that's an interesting data point too, Sharon, because of what we're seeing now during the invasion. We're seeing sort of automotive um, tractors pulling Russian tanks that have been captured. So we're we're that's like. Let, just not that many years since you were there, so you're, you're speaking. There's even more to understand of what's going on in the village life that isn't getting picked up. We're getting perhaps a distortion of uh, of the film clips of you know how the how Ukrainians are responding to Russian military equipment that they're taking over.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just reading an article about the defenses that they're putting up to prevent the tanks from entering the cities, and they're very primitive. I mean, they're relatively primitive, you know, sandbags. They just, they don't have the resources. And it's, to me, that's very
2: tragic.
0: I just want to let people know who've just tuned in. My guests are Sharon Rosenlieb, attorney and blogger out of San Diego, and Nancy Wingfield, Emeritus Scholar of Eastern European History and Gender Studies. And we're talking today on International Women's Day. Think year, think decade, think century, folks, when we think of this day, where we're looking at the range, the, the, the talent pool I want to I wanna really bring up from seasoned analysis of journalists and academics and understanding uh depicting and unpacking development so we're we're talking about nuance so what we're we're already starting to talk about the the impact that that nuance the lack of it has on our understanding I mean you're just bringing more more information when you have have spent time in the country there but and I was talking just last night to an investigative journalist who was, she's struggling right now with her book on Christian nationalism because there's all this fast-breaking news developments going on, and she doesn't want to get anything wrong. She, I mean, she's, she's got yeah. so much nuance. That was like the central operating principle of her getting that nuance just right so that her book has integrity. And so perhaps you could talk about the impact of nuance just sort of eroding or not i mean it's just maybe a muscle that doesn't get toned with sort of earlier younger analytic thinking
1: well there's always a race on to break the story and in this sped up media landscape that does not allow a lot of room for nuance and frankly, I'm surprised that stories are as accurate as they are Seriously? under the circumstances in legacy, you know, at legacy publications because they have the resources to do it, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal, others less so because they just don't have the resources. Even the Los Angeles Times, which I grew up reading, just it, it's getting thinner and thinner, the paper. So. It's it's tough. I I don't know what to say. The resources
0: for nuanced journalism are shrinking. That's a huge factor that um and uh, that I wanted to bring into that. That so uh, less incentive for for the nuance and as the business model of. <laughs> it, I mean it's it's a mutual fund portfolio of owning uh, owning a, a news outlet and so and we saw we saw how. I mean, I don't know if you consider television stations are they are they legacy journalistic outlets or not? Because I, there there was that race to call what was happening on that attack in the the nuclear power facility last week. That was that was. I mean, I was only able to understand what was going on because I'm on a Twitter space where there are people that knew exactly what was going on, and they were very careful to vet everything. But so back to <laughs> where. Are news television networks, is that considered a legacy network? And to see where we're going with these trends in capturing the nuance that is accurately depicting a development.
1: I think places like CNN, I think the major networks and CNN are legacy outlets because they've been around for a long time. But again, there's a race to get the scoop. And in terms of younger journalists, Economics plays into that, too, as I said earlier, because it's so it's very hard to get a job at a legacy publication. And if they are going to hope to make it as a freelancer, they have to brand themselves.
0: And that's so what, yeah. branding
1: themselves. That gets into the algorithms you were talking about, Claudia, right. with getting the hits on getting the hits on your stories
0: and getting followers on Twitter Nancy, you you want to, I know that's another big bite I bit off, but to respond, any parts of those? Um,
2: I don't really watch television, but I would add that Fox is probably in Legacy Network. You might not like it, but it's been there a while. Also, if you're going to be reporting on things, it's extremely useful if you can speak a language other than English. And... This is something that goes to problems with education, and I think that's extremely important. I mean, I'm horrified by people who visit a place for a week or two, and then, oh, gee, I'm an expert. Do you speak that language? No. And I think this is coming home to roost right now.
1: I completely agree with that. And that's
0: that. that's where I want to call out a good example that Terrell Starr. I don't know if either one of you have been following him, but he knows three languages. He's a black journalist, and he is staying in place in Ukraine right now. But and I I participated in an earlier Twitter space before the invasion took place, and he talked about all the languages he knows. And mm-hmm. so I mean there and and he's he's crowdfunding to stay around to stay alive there in Ukraine somehow it's getting the the resources are getting, but that's that's kind of a a marvel of an example of what what's otherwise trending in the careers yeah. a, a,
1: a very well vetted reliable interpreter can also be extremely helpful
2: i uh, don't agree I mean I think that's very helpful, but if my feeling is if people in other countries can do other languages. I don't know why English speakers can't. And I remember watching, when I lived in Portugal, the Israeli ambassador and the Palestinian representative. The Israeli ambassador could speak Portuguese. The Palestinian representative spoke only Spanish. And Portuguese could understand Spanish. There aren't that many Palestinians. I got that. But the immediacy of speaking the language was really very important. And I feel that for reporting, especially from people, you know, on speed dial, that if the United States paid any attention to the rest of the world in a good way, people would be, trilingual would be normal. My son is trilingual. Oh, wow. Which Maybe ones? Maybe he's more than that. He speaks French, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. And this ju- and okay they're all romance languages but this seems to me to be very important in interactions with people and some of the younger people are are stunning in their willingness to learn languages and these are the people whose ideas i pay attention to hmm. and they're not just historians and i mean certainly the fact that all the you know ukrainians um who are the Ukrainian newspapers the Czech newspapers they many of them publish an English version and i think this is really important and my feeling is that if they can do it we should be able to do it too
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and the, and besides nuance and i'm going to maybe it's part of nuance is th- this pattern recognition or pattern detection and I'm, I'm just going to say I'm, I'm sort of late to the game, but I, I know when it's working. It's an interesting kind of an analytical tool. And I would consider it, it's pattern recognition is hiding in plain sight. And so if you could talk, maybe give us some more anecdotes, both of you, Sharon and Nancy, about how you saw it wasn't all fully explained, but through pattern detection, you realized where whatever development was going. I'm sure you have lots of stories, and that's where I'm putting seasoned analysis up there for an essential lane in this highway of production, you know, of transacting, you know, public affairs.
1: Yeah, well, life experience and wisdom help. And as Nancy said, having traveled to different countries and lived in different countries informs the worldview and gets us out of our ethnocentrism as Americans. Many of whom only speak English. And young people, they just don't have that experience, most of them. They they haven't had the time or the opportunity to live abroad and to accumulate that wealth of knowledge of other cultures and experience. And I think as as older journalists take buyouts and younger journalists replace them, And there's not the mentorship that there used to be when publications were better funded, that that creates a problem. And a lot of these knee-jerk reactions that aren't as well-informed. So a lot of it just comes right back to economics, the economics of the workplace.
0: Nancy.
2: I quite agree with Sharon there. I would add a friendly amendment that You can learn languages without leaving the United States, and this is a problem of our educational system, and I wish they'd change. Something that's happened with Ukraine that I think is fairly important is that some of the legacy newspapers and some of the legacy TV stations are actually speaking to experts. And I think it's probably rather more important with my historian's bias, to speak to historians or literature people rather than simply the presentists. And they've begun doing this in, in you know, it's sort of larger numbers of op eds are appearing. Also, um, there are more substacks that you can read with people who have, from people who have spent significant amounts of time in Ukraine for one reason or another. And I was speaking to a friend who's a Southeast Europeanist by training, and we were sort of thinking about what the wars of Yugoslav succession would have been like if they'd been in real time, how they would have played out. And there's something very creepy about watching a war where people are getting killed. Mm. But the news is also, I think, reported differently. And my impression is also, and this you can correct me on, that some of these young bloggers, the ones who are ta- or older bloggers, bloggers who are talking about their experiences in real time have done us a huge favor. And I, I consider that journalism. You can correct me if I'm wrong.
0: Like Terrell Starr?
2: I thought Ukraine? of him as a journalist, there were, uh, but he would be one of them. There are a number of people who write in Ukrainian, and I just run a translation to read them, but mm-hmm. these are people I think are doing a really good job. There's a young man, I'm going to mispronounce his name, John Vestetska, who was in Kiev on a Fulbright, and he and his family were pulled out, and he's now working in Poland helping people. But he's been tweeting about this and talking about his experiences, not trying to enlarge them necessarily. But I find these things enormously useful. Mm -hmm. There are also people who are collecting, as historians do, collecting documentation from a variety of groups in real time. I really appreciate this. Mm -hmm. But again,
0: it's my bias, and I get that. Well, this bias is informing, though. I mean, and mm-hmm. and it's not, Nancy. It's not getting it's due, and that's why we're doing this now. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and these season takes. And so I'm going to throw in not. It's not just travel. I've got another experience. I, I think raising offspring, raising humans, is another huge sort of a data pool for analysis.
1: Well, I have three daughters, so. I, I agree, and, and I've encouraged all of them to travel and uh, learn foreign languages, but the, a lot of our public education system doesn't, as Nancy said, does not do a wonderful job at that, and foreign language study is not uh, as highly valued here, in my opinion, as it should be, because how can we build bridges if we don't speak each other's languages,
0: well, and I want to add to that, and both of you can re- respond to that, is that studying other languages helps us understand the difference between a literal expression and a figurative expression, like when you're using an idiom. And idioms get lost in translation all mm-hmm. the time. So I, I don't think a single language speaker understands how what the power of an idiom is and how it can get wrong so easily, and so, um, and we saw that get in the way when uh, Jimmy Carter was transacting uh, business in Poland. Or I, I can't remember the term, was it in Russia? But, but so that's a real problem if we don't understand that the nature of idioms and that get it can just set something a whole wrong path or uh, bring us, give us a missed opportunity. Yeah, and on a
1: very fundamental level, learning a country's language shows a basic respect for their culture. All right, and a concern for their culture and their people.
2: I was lucky. Senor Salinas from Nicaragua appeared in my classroom when I was seven, and <laughs> we had Spanish starting in second grade and added French in seventh and Latin in ninth and German and Russian in tenth. I was lucky. But th- what this does also is teaches you about your own language.
0: Right. That's what I mean by and, idioms, Yeah.
2: And the other thing I think is interesting is the people who say, oh, I don't have to learn that language because they all speak English. It's like, then how do you know what people are saying about you behind your back? <laughs> no, I mean, that's a serious no, question. No, anything. Or French, it is. it or French, is. Or French people aren't nice. And I'm like, how good you French? And it seems to me that that's also this. We sound like we've gone into the weeds here, but maybe we haven't. Because this is an issue, I think, of journalism and of sort of being public citizens of the world. Right. How we speak to one another, and this means outside of the United States, but also within the United States. I don't know if any Russian speakers or Ukrainian speakers have had people be nasty to them yet because they're speaking Russian or Ukrainian or to a non-native speaker, Polish probably sounds similar. Um, And I hope that's not the case.
0: Well, we live in a bit of a U.N. kind of a neighborhood around here, and they're already, they're actually, they're just coming on over and they're saying, I just want you to know, I'm uh, my Russian neighbor, I want you to know my position on Ukraine. And I'm, uh, you know, I have a Ukrainian neighbor and she's a, she's a wreck right now and we're going to walk together, but I want you to know my position because I think you, you're you concerned about it. So there's, there's all, that's already happening besides like the potential for people just to hold in contempt somebody who's not, bantering away in English only. So, yeah, all that's well, happening was, right now.
2: I was interested. My son flew to New York. Um, well, he tried to fly Sunday night, and the the flight got canceled because of snow, so he flew out Monday. But he was talking to me from the airport, and I said, what is that noise? And he said, oh, there's a Ukrainian woman playing her violin and entertaining us because the flight's late. I'm like, how do you know she's Ukrainian? He's like, the flag. And <laughs> so the next day... He was on the the same flight with her. He said, yep, and the flight came along. But his attitude, I think, is possibly different than other people's. I think everyone loved the violin. But the issue of separating Putin from Russia, Mm -hmm. and even from the Russian soldiers who, as best we know, did not all know they were coming into Ukraine and that seems to actually have been the case. Right. And if they knew, their families didn't know. I think that takes an extra second of thinking that not everybody does.
0: And that's what I want. To, that's what I'm talking about. The pattern detection is if um, it, if if you don't see that pattern, it sort of undermines your critical thinking. It undermines, as we're talking about Nancy saying about the you know, being the, the journalist being. Uh, public citizens abroad, but but being citizens, uh, engage in civil society, that the lack of pattern detection, the undermining, therefore, critical thinking, undermines the integration necessary for healthy outcomes in public health and education and climate, and just name, name more in that series. So, but take that, and I want to know, I'd like to know if both of you as scholars and mentors, bloggers, uh, to younger women how you are finding that that opportunity what you're doing with that if you are finding that opportunity
2: well the this people that i have
1: the most influence over as young women of course are my three young adult daughters and their friends and i'm always encourage them encouraging them to engage in in critical thinking and to really think things through, especially in the social media environment that they've grown up with. And I what think they're a little... Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 just, I just say, do not believe everything you see, any pretty much anything you see on TikTok or Instagram or, you know, whatever social media they're using without really thinking it through and checking it out and going to the Internet and getting both sides. That, And I think having a liberal arts education enables them to do that. And it was expensive. You know, it's expensive to get your kids a solid liberal arts education, but it's the most important tool that we have in creating good global citizens. And I also teach them to speak out, to be assertive. Do you Which for women said, is still hard. It's still a little tough. Yeah,
2: Nancy. Do you also say what I've told people, including people, This was junior colleagues. It's like don't share everything. It doesn't go yes. away.
1: Yes, yes. You mean to be discreet, or
2: yes, just your personal life. Keep it personal.
1: Yes. Oh, I, I told them that all
0: the time. Well, and not only, not just for keep, uh, distinguishing between personal and the, the public person, but, but the sort of maintaining, keeping your powder dry. Save it for when you've got you've got to deliver a big punch. Right. Oh, I thought you ought and to I'll... know about this. After you've heard all this, this other data from me over the whatever length of time. But so that that's what I, I keep my F-bombs to a minimum. So when I use the F-bomb, it's, but that's not that's not a nuanced data item, but it's just saying, but you're talking about withholding is very strategic.
1: It is, well, and not, a... not retweeting everything, just knee-jerk, you know, not amplifying I... a message that you're not sure is valid.
2: I find that something that I do for myself, that with Ukraine, there are things I would like to believe, but I don't think they're true. And so Mm -hmm. I go through lots of kinds of searches to find out if they are, and often enough I don't retweet. But I'm also thinking of protection, particularly for younger women, in terms, and this sounds maybe odd, but I think things that seem very reasonable to one cohort, and it can be your cohort by age, by friend group, by location. May not seem as reasonable to outsiders, and mm-hmm. that I I just worry that this will affect people's job possibilities.
0: It already is. I think, I think I think we've seen where there's been some remorse about the overshare in social media.
2: Well, the other thing that's happening, and I don't know. If you, I think you follow Kim Sanjulian Varnan, the woman from Penn. She has been attacked, apparently, at so many levels. And she is just the best on trying to keep to the subject, which is her expertise on Ukraine and Russia. And apparently, when she talked about the issues... Some of the international black students were having getting out of of ukraine she got attacked and then people talking about various different groups like roma and so i worry about people also you have to have a very thick skin i suspect to deal with all of these trolls and so that's that's the other thing i worry about not just for your daughter sharon but for for everyone who might inadvertently or deliberately be putting themselves out there with an expertise and still get just beaten up on.
0: Well, that's because nuance is a real hard sell, (laughs) right? Yes, because it takes
1: time. And we live in a very fast-moving news environment. And one thing that I think we've learned is that Facebook has the capability to shut off disinformation when it is pressured into doing so, and Frances Hagen brought this up in her testimony right. before Congress, but yes. they've been they've consistently failed to do it unless under extreme pressure. So that's a real problem.
2: I left Facebook uh, quite a I don't even a couple of years ago because Mark Zuckerberg just annoyed me. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do this. And I get that he owns Instagram or his company does, but I post cats. And so Twitter is my only social media, and there are things I would prefer it didn't do. But I feel somehow like it's less perfidious than Facebook, although I could, of course, be wrong. Well, I think the problem
1: with Twitter is the trolls that it can be a real cesspool in terms of trolls. But for journalists, I think it's a very valuable tool. Nancy, as you were saying, in terms of real-time reporting, getting the word on the ground out right away, I think it's invaluable for that.
2: I have a personal question to you, Sharon. Did you blog about your trip to Ukraine? I did. All right, I'll go find that.
0: All right, we could maybe do a link up in the the podcast summary so people can follow that and I don't I can put everybody's Twitter handles if you want on there as well
2: yes Nancy. I would like to hear or see your experience because it seems to me the more general information people have about their experiences in that country, the more lifelike it becomes to people who've never been there
1: yeah i I agree. I agree, because as you said, it's a highly educated, highly cultured populace. And Odessians take tremendous pride in their opera house and their music, and there's music played in parks. You know, orchestral music, and it. I was just so impressed by that.
0: So. And I and the the kind of the I guess building the story. That this is the other service of that the nuance and the details put all together. It there is more traction in taking that story, all those associations that story. It helps us keep that, so we can use that in in our next reflection, our next encounter. So it's, if it's just a blast, you don't have any context that sticks to it. So there's no traction. So it's not getting carried anywhere. It drops. That, and that's a kind of like a like a neurocognitive kind of aspect of nuance in analytical tools in journalism and other research. you want to yeah. make that yeah. the we last comment? I We just one?
1: have a fire hose of information being trained on us every day
0: so wading through it isn't easy.
2: I agree with that.
0: So maybe to add then to that comment is what do you think is where we're what's the trend in how different how different consuming news book reading um, what that trend forebodes for our understanding as civic members.
1: Again, I think listening to seasoned academics like Nancy who have the deep knowledge, who speak the languages is very important and balancing that with news, with on-the-ground current news so that we have, we can see the patterns. Like you said, now, and I think that's where the marriage can come in. The young, the young courageous yes. people ha- have the ability to be on the ground and make those tweets, whereas the older... People with the life experience can shape it into a narrative with deep context and nuance.
2: I'd like to add to that a reminder. I, I speak baby Ukrainian. <laughs> I tend to, to speak sort of proto-Slavic at people. Um, but there are also, at least in Ukraine, there's some older reporters on the ground who've been there a while and they haven't left. And that's not to take away from the younger people who Ukrainians and others who have been doing an amazing job of reporting. Also the people who've been translating deserve huge respect. And some of them of course are, are quite young and they're both Ukrainians and, and non Ukrainians doing some of that. And I assume that there are Russian speakers who are translating information into Russian. And also, I I thank the people who are saying, you know, quit objectifying the president of Ukraine. He's the president. You know, he's, he's doing his job and doing it very well.
0: Well that's the thing, yeah. That's not very nuanced just to sort of run with the hero figure, right? We gotta understand, break it down. Know that sometimes it's, it's propaganda. It's not sometimes.
2: even that, I'm tired of people talking about him being hot. Right, that's right. That's so what I mean.
0: Annoys me. It's so that's a brush broad a broad stroke there. Yeah. Well, ladies, it's been really a, a marvel of around with you. Thank you so much for your time today here on Ask a Leader.
2: Well thank you for having us and thank you for introducing me to Sharon. I'm looking forward to finding your blog and to following you on, on Twitter, which is my only social media. Thank you, Claudia.
1: Thank you, Claudia. And wonderful to meet you too, Nancy, and hear your deep knowledge. Really
2: appreciate that.
0: And to Deep, well, maybe and, not. Yes indeed. <laughs> and all the best and all the best that we can muster here on International Women's Day. My guests, Happy
2: International Women's Day.
0: Thank you. My guests are Sharon Rosenlieb, attorney and blogger, and Nancy Wingfield, Emeritus Scholar of Eastern European History and Gender Studies on Ask a Leader. Well, that's my wrap, and for next week's show, I'm bringing out the first of many local candidates who will be on our California June 7th primary ballot. And it's uh, going to be candidate for the Orange County Assessor, folks. We got to pass the quiz. What these people do? I I I already learned a lot about what what they do and what's not being done in, uh, with the incumbent. So that Rick Foster will challenge the incumbent. He'll be on the show next week. And then the second segment will be John Potash with his brand new book, The FBI more on Tupac Shakur and I was going to have him on earlier but this is the this is when I want to have him on so and there's also going to be an exhibit that's accompanying that in Los Angeles talk with you next week thank you for listening everyone and folks I'm going to say it every closing verify your news sources verify before clicking forward thanks again Коня, хай стрела у меня полетит.